Um, if you missed the introduction, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide um, to look at our passage that we're, um, we're going through this morning. If you have a Bible, it's in Luke chapter 8. Let me encourage you to turn to it there. Uh, I'll give you a, a little introduction, a little introduction to what's going on in the gospel according to Luke. What we're reading, what you're holding in your hand is, is an ancient source. It's a first century document, and it describes in detail the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. Luke, he writes based on eyewitness testimony, other early eyewitness records uh, of those who had followed Jesus, who had seen him who had lived with him and ministered beside him. And so what you're holding in your hand is historically accurate. It's faithful, and it's a trustworthy account of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he came to do, and what that means for us, why it matters. Luke writes with a specific purpose. He, he wants his readers, whether they're in the first century, all the way up to the 21st century, to believe the good news about Jesus, to find rest and peace with God through Jesus, and to give their lives to following this Jesus. Our text this morning, I mentioned this last week, it's the second of three consecutive stories where Jesus demonstrates incredible authority, incredible power, and he's showing his disciples, he's showing the readers of Luke, just who he is, what kind of person this is. Last week, we saw Jesus' incredible power over nature, where he calmed the raging winds and the howling storm on the Sea of Galilee. Next week, we'll see incredible authority over disease and death itself. And this week, this is the middle of the three stories, we see Jesus' authority over the unseen and spiritual forces at work in our world. Uh, let me turn your attention again to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasians, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you. Do not torment me. For he had commanded, or he was commanding, the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him, not to command them to depart into the, the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasians asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. 
So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask that you would now open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that you would soften our hearts so that we can receive this word and bear good fruit. We ask for your spirit's help. We cannot do this on our own. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. At the beginning of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, we enter into the world of Narnia. It's a magical, wonderful place. It was once very beautiful. It was filled with joy. But now, it's occupied territory. Its inhabitants, various creatures and people, they live under the heel of the evil and oppressive White Witch. The creatures of Narnia, for a hundred years, they've been unable to overthrow the witch themselves. They're resisting her but they're unable to completely defeat her. And so, they wait, they hope, they look forward to one day being delivered by an outside power, one more powerful than them, and also, thankfully, more powerful than the White Witch. And in the course of the story, this outside power finally lands in Narnia. And the message quickly spreads, Aslan is on the move. Aslan, the great lion, the king, the son of the emperor over the sea, he's finally landed in enemy-occupied territory, and he begins his work, the work that he's been sent to do, to set his people free. See, just like Narnia, the drama of the Bible, which you and I find ourselves in every single day, is, as the theologian Fleming Rutledge calls it, a tripartite drama. We live in a tripartite drama. Uh, that means that there are three actors constantly at work in our world, three actors constantly at work in your life. There is God, uh, there's us, there's humanity, but there's also a third actor, a powerful, malevolent, determined, untiring actor, bent on nothing less than, than the dethroning of God and the destruction of all that he's made. The evil is personified. It's not just an abstract force. It's not something just within ourselves. The Bible describes it as the devil, as Satan, as the demonic, as an unseen spiritual force, as a, as a reality which surrounds us and influences our world. This power is at work among us, and this is what the scriptures say. Just like the Narnians, we're powerless on our own against it. We can resist, but we can't ultimately defeat it. And yet, Aslan is on the move. In this world, God is at work. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. To be born into this world is to be born as a captive, to sin, to the flesh, to the devil. And this is what we need. We all desperately need this, for Christ to come and to set us free. That's, that's the big idea of this sermon. It's a big theme running throughout the whole Bible and throughout this text in particular, that you're a captive, that I'm a captive, that this world is in captivity unless Christ sets us free. You're a captive until Christ sets you free. Our outline for the sermon this morning is going to focus on the evil forces that are presented vividly in this section of Luke, uh, which is called the demonic. That's how we'll address it. And, and so our sermon will have three parts. Uh, first is this. The demonic is powerful. The demonic 
is limited. And third, the demonic's time is ending. The demonic is powerful, it's limited, and its time is ending. Uh, In Luke chapter 8, where we are right now, it sets up this confrontation between Jesus and the demonic on the shores of the land of the Gerasenes. This is a direct confrontation between the two outside powers in our world. The Gerasenes, geographically, this is a a Gentile or a non-Jewish country. Jesus and his disciples, if you look at the text at verse 26, they've just sailed across the Sea of Galilee. Now they're in in the southeastern part of it. Uh, If you look at verse 26, it says it explicitly. This is opposite Galilee. It's across the sea. Galilee's part of Israel. The Gerasenes are not. And so just as you read this story, there's an immediate sense of we're not in Kansas anymore. Like, this is not Jesus' home turf. This isn't where the people of God belong. They're in a uniquely, spiritually unclean place. There are pigs close by. Pigs are an unclean animal to the Jewish people. They weren't to keep or eat pigs. And so the large herd of pigs on the the hills nearby points out, okay, uh, this is not a great place to be. We're in enemy territory. And of course, worse than the unclean pigs, there is an unclean man. Look at verse 27. This is a man from the city who had demons. Now, just let me, let me give you a little warning before we go ahead. You might be a little bit disappointed with this text, perhaps with the sermon, perhaps with me, <laughs> that I'm not going to give you a systematic explanation on the mechanics of demon possession, right? How it happens, uh, what it does, how to avoid it. If you're wondering if the burning question, the burden of this text for you is, how can demons go inside of pigs? <laughs> how does that work? I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to give you an answer because Luke doesn't give you an answer. What's described here, though, and elsewhere in the Bible, while not specific enough to perhaps satisfy your curiosity, it does give us some very, some general, but also some particular principles that we need to go on. And this is the first. The demonic is powerful. The demonic is powerful. The demon's influence over this man is frightening. There are many demons in this man. Uh, his name is Legion. This could be, you know, uh, it just means a lot. It could be between like five and 6,000 or something like that. Um, but look at what they've, they've brought on this man. Look at the, at the middle of verse 27. For a long time they've afflicted him. He is wild. He is violent. He is naked. He's alone. In verse 29, you see that the people of the land, they had apparently tried to help this man. They did everything they could. They set a guard over him. They put him in shackles and chains. They did their very best. But the demons somehow, again, not explained, overpowered everything and drove the man into the wilderness to make his home among the corpses, among the tombs of the Gerasians. This is, this is meant to give us a, a terrible, miserable picture of what the demonic powers in our world are capable of doing. They cause this man to live away from the presence and care of his family, of his home, of his people, of society. He's driven to live among and alone the odor of death. He's tormented. He's restless. He's miserable. Demonic powers are powerful. They're real. And they're set on doing real damage. This picture of a personified evil working in and among humans it might feel a bit far-fetched to you. Like you read this and your mind goes to myth. It goes to fantasy. It goes to horror movies that you've seen. Because the belief in demons, you might think, are foolish. It belongs to an ancient age, unable to explain things like mental illness uh, or other natural causes. And so you just kind of explain away the text like that. Because modern Western people, not everyone in the world, 
But in the modern West, people have been taught to think that everything we see around us, uh, everything that we experience, has a material cause, has a natural cause behind it. Um, We can explain everything around us just using the stuff that's around us. And so, as a result, we think uh, this is a corollary. If evil and suffering and hatred only have natural, material causes, we can fix it naturally. We we can solve the problems among us uh, on our own, or if we pool all of our resources, if we take the right medicines, if we learn the right things, if we develop the right strategies, we can beat anything that comes across us. And so what we think when we come to this text is what this man needs is therapy. He needs medication. He needs some smart professionals to get around him. But the Bible, not not just here, but elsewhere, paints a far more bleak, but a far more realistic picture of what life on earth is like. Because like the people of the Gerasians who did everything they possibly could to help this man but couldn't, so there's a restless, powerful, malevolent evil in this world that's totally beyond us to cure. Like, we are living in arguably the most enlightened centuries of our world. We have the most advanced scientific learning. And we also have lived in the last 200 years in the bloodiest, most violent era. We've had the worst wars. We have brought into this world the most cruel acts that have ever been witnessed. In our own beloved nation, here in Canada, one of the most prosperous, educated in history, we practice the most cruel, violent, harmful deeds imaginable to the unborn, to very young children, to the elderly. One character thinking, material thinking, only sees the problems in our world as having natural causes. Uh, Two character thinking believes that there's God in us and and maybe if God just kind of helps us, we can improve ourselves. But the tripartite drama of the Bible sees the destruction, the hatred, the anger, the violence, the oppression, the misery, pain and suffering we see in our world as being motivated, being empowered, being pushed along by evil personal powers that are beyond us on our own to deal with. Now, Now, just as a As an aside, there are many people, there are governments, there are groups who are complicit in this evil work, who who join in and further along demonic work to oppress humanity. So this isn't trying to absolve people of blame. The devil made me do it. But this tripartite vision also sees such people, such governments as outworkings of this web and network of malevolent spiritual forces. What we don't need is a political solution. Ultimately, we need a spiritual solution. Now, the work of demonic powers isn't always as dramatic as you see it in Luke chapter 8. Some of us, we read this passage and we think, I can't, I can't relate to this. I haven't seen this. And I'm not saying it still can't in our world, but I think it is actually rare. Even in the Bible, this type of direct encounter with evil personified is rare. It's not common. And so one way to see this story, to see this man, is an intensified picture of what the demonic powers in our world will bring about in every living person in you and me, unless Jesus comes to deliver us. Imagine a time-lapse video where you take a bright red, a fresh apple, and you put it outside, and then you record it over the course of a month, right? And then you you re-watch this video, time-lapse, and you speed it up so that just in a few seconds you see what will happen to this apple. And what happens? What happens over the course of a month? You see it rotting. See its colors fade. You see its shape begin to shrivel as it caves in on itself. It's it's consumed externally by ants, internally mold and bacteria uh, ruin it. It blackens, it twists until it's almost completely gone. 
This man, this demon-possessed man, he is an intensified, time-lapsed image of what will happen to you, of what will happen to me, what will happen to humanity, unless Christ sets us free. Unless Christ himself acts to preserve, to protect us from the rot and destruction of the demonic powers around us, you're without hope. Because the demonic is powerful. We need to set that in our mind. We have to keep that in mind at all times. This is why the church is called to pray, uh, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil or, or from the evil one. So if we set that in our mind first, the demonic is powerful, we need to move to our second part, which is this. The demonic is limited. Maybe powerful, but it is limited. Contrary to popular horror movies or, you know, where your imagination might be taking this text, the demonic is limited. Its power isn't absolute. Uh, Many commentators point out that while for all of their power, the demons, they haven't been able to do something. They haven't actually been able to kill this man that they're possessing. They get into the pigs, they kill them right away, but this man, they don't. And so it's been brought up, I think with good reason, that demons, whatever their powers are, are quite limited in many ways. One being that they can't directly kill people. Uh, They can harm them and afflict and tempt and harass them, but they they can't destroy them. If that's a bit speculative to you, I think it's crystal clear that demonic powers are limited because we see this in the way that they interact with Jesus. In our text, the demons possessing this man, they fall down before Jesus. This is an act of humiliation, of fear. Look at verse 28. They say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That phrase, uh, what have you to do with me, it's a Semitic idiom, uh, and it basically means, uh, leave me alone. Uh, Mind your own business. We have modern vernacular, we might say, stay in your lane, Jesus. See, the demons recognize in Jesus one who has power far beyond their own. Theirs is extremely limited next to his. They're limited, he's not. Jesus isn't one of the powers, he is the power, he is the son of the most high God, and he is against them. We see just how limited these demons are in the way that they beg Jesus for different things. They can't do anything apart from his authority, apart from his granting. So at the end of verse 28, if you look at it, they say, I beg you, don't torment me. In verse 31, they beg Jesus not to command them into the abyss. The abyss is the final permanent judgment for these powers. In the middle of verse 32, they beg Jesus to be allowed to go into the pig herd close by. See, the evil powers in this world, they are powerful. We shouldn't deny that. This man has been captive to them. He is beaten. He's alienated. Again, this is an apt illustration of us, of our world, apart from Christ's intervening grace. But thankfully, this power is limited. It has its limits. So the demonic is powerful. The demonic is limited. And third, the demonic's time is ending. The demonic's time is ending. If you can remember way back to Luke chapter 4, Jesus kind of kicks off his public ministry by reading from the ancient prophet Isaiah. He goes into a synagogue, he opens up a scroll, and he begins to read it. And and what he says is that um, he is the fulfillment to what's been promised long ago. This people who have long been in captivity, who have been waiting and hoping for release, it's finally arrived. Jesus reads from Isaiah chapter 61, back in Luke chapter 4, and this is the text he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, why? To proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what happens next? 
Luke writes, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue are fixed on him, and he says to them, Today, today the scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus' mission, and we see it in this story. He's putting the demonic on notice. Their time's ending. Jesus has come for this express purpose, to set the captives free. And just as Jesus has brought, has brought calm to the storm in the section before us with only a word, now with just a word, Jesus commands the demons to leave this man and brings a calm to him. Look at the end of verse 35. This man who for years, for a long time, was tempted, tormented, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is an image that's used elsewhere to say he is a disciple of Jesus. He's, he's a committed follower of Jesus. He is clothed. He's in his right mind. Jesus has saved him. He has released him from captivity. With Jesus, the demonic's time is ending. The tripartite drama, for all that it is, it isn't a fair fight. Right? It's not a question. We're not reading the Bible wondering who's going to win in the end. We're not looking at the events in our world wondering who will win in the end. The demonic powers of this world, the gospel says, are outmanned, outgunned, outflanked by Christ. The promise, Aslan is on the move, or much better for Christian purposes, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. It is a promise. And the only question left for us is not if, but when. Every demonic power will be overthrown. It's not long till the day of the Lord, we sing. See, Jesus comes in power. He comes to those who are captive to give us hope, to give us life, to give us a family, to clothe us, and to put us in our right mind. And so the message of chapter 8 of Luke is good news for us all, not just for this man. All of us who feel this pull and push and, and press of unseen spiritual forces Uh, which tempt us and try us to sin, to unbelief, to anger, to hatred, to resentment, to bitterness. There's one who's stronger than these forces. We may not feel it in ourselves, but that's because it is in Christ, not in us. Help has come, and it's come in the name of Jesus. The demonic's powerful. It really is. It's limited. And because Christ is on the move, the demonic's time is ending. Now, I think there's a final question we have to ask ourselves before we end our time, and and, and it's this. Why do people people remain in captivity? Why why doesn't everybody kind of celebrate that Christ is on the move? Why do some not only uh, remain in captivity, but they insist that the Christian faith isn't one of freedom from captivity, but is actually in itself a form of captivity? When the people of the Gerasians, when they hear about the demon-possessed man being healed, when they see him clothed in his right mind, a disciple of Jesus, what's their reaction? Is it celebration? No. It's fear. This fear actually leads them to eventually rejecting Jesus, telling him to go away. Look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasians asked Jesus to depart from them. For they were seized, like this man was seized by demons. They were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. That is, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and headed back to Galilee. What's going on here? Well, the text isn't precisely clear on what 
what they were so afraid of. But the same story is told also in the other Gospels, in Mark's Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel, at least it implies that the loss of their pigs, it really meant something to the, to the people of the Gerasians. That perhaps they were afraid that Jesus and his ongoing work of setting the captives free would be bad for business. Like if Jesus stays around and he keeps on doing this kind of stuff in our land, it'll ruin us. We would rather have a demon-possessed man running around naked and our pigs than to have a healed man and no pigs at all. Jesus might be setting the captives free. He may even be coming to us to set us free from captivity. But, but they're afraid of what that might mean for them, what it might do to them, what it might cost them. John Calvin, he comments on this passage, and he writes, he writes this, The loss of their swine gives them more alarm than the salvation of their souls gives them joy. Let me say that again. The loss of their swine gives them more alarm than the salvation of their souls would give them joy. See, the Gerasenes are acting exactly like the demons did. They too tell Jesus to leave. What have you to do with us, Jesus? Jesus, get out of here. Jesus, Stay in your lane. And maybe like them, you too, you have something that you're so afraid Jesus will cause you to lose when he begins his work in you that you're telling him to go away. You want to live your life the way you want to live your life. You want to have the relationships you want, the things you want, the pleasures you want, the reputation that you want. And Jesus' coming rescue will be costly. Why do people remain captives to the powers of this world? Because they don't want Jesus. They don't want him to be in their life. They don't want his light to shine on their darkness. See, Jesus and his kingdom are often opposed to our kingdom, to our own selfish interests. And such people have no interest in the kind of work that Jesus is doing. We too, we tell Jesus, go, depart from us. The author C.S. Lewis, he wrote Narnia, wrote a lot of other books. He has a haunting message in one of his very tiny novels called The Great Divorce. Uh, this is a book about the two final destinations that all humanity will find themselves in. Heaven and hell. Heaven, the place where God is everywhere present. Where freed captives live with Christ in eternal joy. And hell, the abyss. The place made for demons and evil powers. But will be the abode of captives of the demonic forever where the rot and destruction that's begun on earth continues into eternity. Why heaven, why hell? Lewis writes this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. To those who today Look at Jesus and say, Jesus, go away. In the end, they'll have it. Friends, trust in Christ. Trust him all the way. Yes, there's cost. Yes, there will be loss. Jesus actually describes discipleship in his way as being cross-bearing, as being difficult. It's like a seed looking like it's dead, being buried into the ground. But his promise is, is to set you free, 
to give you lasting eternal life and freedom. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, there's loss. But there is a crown after the cross. There is fruit after the seed is dead and buried. One of my favorite verses, a very helpful verse to me when I was a new Christian in my late teens was John 10.10. Jesus saying to his disciples, the thief's purpose, that is the, the devil's, the demonic forces of our world, their purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you life in all its fullness. Let's end with this. This story, for all of its glory, it paints kind of a bleak picture. It's a bit of a downer. We're captive until Jesus sets us free, and yet people, when they see that freedom, they reject it. They reject Jesus. They don't want him. Christ came to rescue us, but people, empowered, motivated, influenced by the dark powers of this world, hate, reject, and they ultimately crucify this same Christ. What's Jesus' response to people like this, to people like you and I who over and over again push him away? How will God act to a world, to a city like Halifax, which willfully, forcefully rejects him? He responds with patience, with mercy, with kindness, with generosity, with grace and love. Though in the end people Ultimately, in the very end, we'll face fearful and ultimate judgment. Until that final day comes, Christ continues to offer forgiveness and freedom in him. Look at verse 39. The people of, Ger of the Gerasenes are acting like demons. They've rejected Jesus. They've told him to go away. And what does Jesus do? He sends them a full-time missionary. <laughs> Jesus goes, but he leaves them a little zealot. <laughs> someone who will be a constant reminder to them of the freedom and peace that Christ offers to them. This healed man, he actually wants to go with Jesus. And in, in a reversal of what's been happening this whole passage, Jesus rejects him, <laughs> tells him to go away. Jesus tells him no, and look what he says in verse 39. Return to your home. Go to the Gerasians. Declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, and what did he do? He proclaimed throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, God's rescuing, captive-releasing work through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it continues to go out. It goes out, and it's being offered to those who have time and again rejected Jesus. Thanks be to God for that, or you wouldn't be here, all right? This is the mission and the calling of, of his church to this day. We're to be the evidence of God's patience and mercy. We who have rejected God, who have heard this message over and over again, and have by his grace been set free, this offer is made to everybody. We are called as a church to tell the world how much Christ has done for us and offer him freely to others. See, the mission of the church may sometimes feel hopeless. We may constantly face rejection. The church often feels stiff resistance to the good news. The demonic is awful, it's powerful, it's influential, but Aslan is on the move. Or better, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Now may you, now may you see and know and believe the tripartite drama you live in and that you're a captive until Christ comes to set you free. May you know the demonic is powerful, and not be boastful or self-confident in yourself, but pray daily, keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. May you know the limits of the demonic and so not be despaired or overwhelmed. May you celebrate that because of Christ, the demonic's time is ending. May you welcome Christ 
and not chase them away. And may you, after being clothed and set in your right mind, go and tell everyone how much Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder of your mercy and grace, even to those who are complicit in the work of the evil powers of this world, who have furthered it along through our disobedience, through our engagement in words, thoughts, deeds, practices, which are destructive to us, to our neighbors, and to your kingdom. Father, we thank you that it is your mission, your work, to set captives like us, captives in our neighborhood and at our workplace and within our own family. And this is your good pleasure that you have sent us for this very purpose. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. Fill us with your spirit now, with confidence and hope of our own freedom and a hope for the freedom of others. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.